Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. How you doing out there? We've had a uh, pretty eventful week or two here at the Frost House, West Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, Last week we saw the arrival of our little baby boy. Uh, His name is Rufus and he is extraordinary. Uh, For those of you who have read through the Maybe Baby series of blog posts on intheshift.com, which I posted up towards the end of last year, You'll know a little bit about this journey for us and the ups and downs and the nine years it's taken us to get to this point. So it's been an amazing, it's about nine or ten days since he was born. Um, It's just a fascinating, it's it's just an interesting, (laughs) extraordinary combination of feeling totally surreal uh, and then completely normal at the same time. Uh, I'm definitely at that point now where I am seeing nappies in front of my eyes when I close them. Uh, So... For those of you who do have children and who have had them for much longer than I, you're probably laughing at me, given that I'm only a week and a half into this business. But um, anyway, so far it's been a blast. We're having a great time. He's an awesome little dude. So far he's pretty chilled. Um, so that's cool. And that's pretty much like dominating the conversation in the Frost House at the moment. Uh, we are living our life in three to four hour sections. Uh, so that's interesting, isn't it? Life gets boiled down to some of the core fundamentals. <laughs> Uh, so it seems like a, that's a pretty uh, clunky way to segue into talking about violence in the Bible. Yes. Shall we do that? All right. Newborn babies on the one hand, and uh, and now we're going to do a podcast episode talking about violence in the Bible. But hey, that's kind of what we're talking about. So let's just dive into it and give it a crack. Uh, if you've listened to the last few episodes of In The Shift, you'll know that we are spending a bit of time talking about what we think about God, because how we think about what or who lies at the heart of fundamental reality itself, you know, this God language that we use, this language of the divine, whatever it is that we mean by that, how we think about God in that sense has a profound impact on the way we interpret the world we live in, the way we interpret the experiences that we have day in, day out, the way we see ourselves, the way that we treat others, the way that we behave, the way that we see purpose and meaning and the way that we pursue life and all of its complexity and ambiguity. And at times, I think it's fair to say that certain depictions of God in the Christian tradition, in particular, in which I've grown up in, uh, they do seem a bit haphazard (laughs) or at least paradoxical. Uh, So on the one hand, and I mentioned this a couple of times along the way, if you've been following the journey from the start of this podcast, on the one hand, God is loving and merciful and forgiving and compassionate. And yet on the other hand, there are certain texts in the Bible and certain views of God that give us this idea that God has supported tribal warfare. Uh, Last time in in this podcast, we looked at the so-called men of God who've perpetuated this violence and oppression against women and yet are still held up as heroes within the story. And what we also find is that the God character in Christian scripture takes violence into their own hands, you know, whether it be to command the people of God to obliterate their enemies, including their children, or sometimes the divine character, the God character, directly carries out this violence by the divine hand, you know. So there are acts of divine justice wherein the evil are swept away by a flood or they're drowned in a river or they're swallowed up by a sudden giant chasm that opens in the ground. So that's pretty intense. And what do we do with this? Because if we just find ways to put it aside, while sort of simultaneously accepting it and believing it at the same time, you know, which is, I think, what a lot of Christians are kind of raised and trained to do, You read the stories, you're like, yes, it happened. Yes, that was what God did. Yes, that's what God is like. But also at the same time, 
I can kind of put that to the side because that was back then and that was before Jesus and so it's kind of true and it's what God is capable of and what God has done, but I don't have to think about it too much because I don't live back then. But if, if, that's what, if that's our approach, if that's our solution to the problem, then while kind of the everyday God we believe in is good, or at least seems good, the God that hovers over our shoulder is the one who's actually capable of genocide. And while this paradox can lie dormant for years and years, I think it ultimately manifests itself in real-world scenarios. I, you know, I think we see that happening in the world at the moment. And I think of my own life, and I think the way that for many years I was able to, on one level, be this loving, generous, thoughtful, insightful person, but on another level I was capable of thinking all sorts of things about those who are outside of my tribe. I could be the God is love guy, you know, in my day-to-day life, but dig a little deeper and there are some, what I now think are some pretty problematic ways of seeing people and myself that sat under the surface. And I think they're quite directly connected to some of the things I believed about God that just hovered in the background of my life. So I don't think it's okay just to agree to let it sit there. I think the whole thing needs addressing, and so that's what I'm trying to do in this series on the text of terror. So this is episode nine of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So this episode is the last in our little trilogy we've been doing on violence in scripture. And this episode, I guess for me at least, is the pointy end of the conversation. This conversation that we've been having over these various episodes on what we've called the texts of terror, borrowing Phyllis Tribble's phrase when she first coined that to talk about some of the violence against women that we see in the Bible. Uh, And I guess the reason I think this is the pointy end of the conversation is because perhaps we can find ways to explain what happens when ancient peoples in the Bible carry out violence. You know, we can we can see the way in which that kind of violence is a part of the ancient world and the tribal confrontations that take place there. And perhaps we can even challenge and confront some of the patriarchal violence uh, that men have carried out against women in Scripture. But what about when it's God who's doing it? What do we do then? Now, if you've spent much time reading the Bible, and certainly I'm not assuming that you have, uh, not many people probably do these days, even though people who wave it in the air and say they love it uh, don't really read it all that much, I don't think. Uh, so if you have dipped into it at some point, uh, or even if you've just heard about it through the way that certain biblical stories have found their way into pop culture, you'll probably know that there are a number of incidences in the Bible that portray God as the perpetrator of violence. So let's think about a few examples and then we'll see where we go. <laughs> All right. So... um. Firstly, let's, uh, let's start in the first book of the Bible, which is Genesis. And in the beginning of Genesis, you've got this incredible uh, mythology that that's unfolds, this creation epic, um, which actually at its time and its place is quite countercultural. You know, a lot of the ancient creation mythologies talked about the world coming into being uh, through the violence between different gods. And yet in this Genesis story, actually there's a couple of different Tradition, oral traditions that are woven into the first two or three chapters of Genesis. Uh, so Genesis 1 is likely one oral tradition of this creation mythology, and then Genesis 2 and 3 are a different oral tradition, which is why things happen in slightly different orders between them. 
Um, but in both of them, there's the sense of harmony and the sense of peace and the sense of uh, lack of conflict that gives rise to creation. Uh, and so there's something really profound and meaningful in that idea that perhaps creation is not the overflow of violence and conflict, but perhaps creation is the overflow of generosity and of benevolence. So that's a beautiful way to start. But then just a few chapters later, we have this God now who regrets creating humanity because of how horrendous they've become. We don't get huge insight into all of the different things that they're doing that make them so evil or horrendous. But there's a fair indication that they're up to no good, a lot of those people. Right, and what's God's solution to that? Well, firstly, he kind of feels bummed that he made people at all. He's like, oh, man, I kind of wish I hadn't done this. And then God has to come up with a bit of a solution. And rather than a total reboot, uh, God's solution is to do a sort of a partial reboot, which is to send a massive flood that drowns everybody uh, in the world except for one particular family, and that's the family of Noah. So Noah is sort of labelled as being the only righteous man left in the world. And so he gets this instruction to build a, an ark. And him and his family and all the animals come onto the ark two by two. And uh, they are the ones who survived the flood, whereas everybody else drowns. And that's a pretty intense story, right? This is what God has done uh, right in the first few chapters of the Bible. Uh, this divine act of judgment that wipes just about everybody off the face of the earth. And, you know, the fascinating thing for me now is that this is, I mean, I learned this as a kid's story growing up. And um, and it's still a kid's story for many people within the life of the church. And I remember that Simpsons episode, wasn't there a, uh, an episode with Flanders uh, and his kids and learning the story of the ark and there's an annoying little song about the animals coming in two by two. And, uh, and I grew up with all of that as well. And, you know, we, we used to have these flannel graph things where... There's this kind of felt board of some kind and there were figures that were sort of cut out and made of, I can't even remember what they were made of, but they somehow they stuck onto the the felt board and they would illustrate the Bible stories to us. And I remember I still have this picture in my mind of, of you know, people disappearing below the waves as they were swept away by the flood. And, you know, we're just sitting there as a six or a seven-year-old going, oh, look at the people, look at them drowning because they were so evil. So... You have to ask the question, is this actually a kid's story, for starters? And the answer is probably no. And then the part of the problem with telling it as a kid's story is that you end up becoming blind to the terror that's actually here in the text. Because we have a God character who decides the only available option left to them is to kill everybody except for one good dude and his family. So that's pretty full on. It's pretty intense, I reckon. Uh, then a few chapters later, so we've had we've had this kind of partial reboot, you know, well, almost total reboot, which is that we've wiped everybody out. Uh, and also growing up, this is how the dinosaurs get out of the picture, you know, because they can't survive in a post-flood world or something, something weird like that. Anyway, um, we've got an almost total reboot, which is that everybody's died except for Noah and his family. And so then Noah and his family are given the same instructions that Adam and Eve are given at the beginning, which is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and so on. But things spiral out of control super quickly again. But this time, instead of a flood, uh, God calls this guy Abraham, who becomes Abraham. And we mentioned last time that Abraham, he's got some issues. He's a bit of a problematic individual in some ways. Um, but nevertheless, he's the start of God's new project to try and fix uh, the big mess that everyone seems to keep making of everything. Um, 
And so Abraham, you know, boldly steps out and follows this this call of this mysterious God who says, you know, follow me and I will make your descendants numerous like the stars in the sky. And then uh, and then gives Abraham this song about having many sons and now they will have to nod their heads and, and turn around and sit down. Uh, I think that's how it goes. I do have a PhD after all. I know that's in there for sure. And then, so then after this promise of numerous descendants, uh, God, uh, Abraham has this son, Isaac, and then God asks him to go and sacrifice his son on the top of a mountain. And so he does go to do that. He goes, okay then, God has told me to go to the top of the mountain and sacrifice my son to this God. So that's interesting. And then at the last second, God steps in and says, no, stop. Here's a ram. Instead, you can kill this ram and that'll make me happy. Which is good. I mean, that's good for Isaac, isn't it? But lots of people in the church and in Christian faith talk about how you know great Abraham was because he just obeyed God, you know, even though it would cost him everything, even though it cost him the promises that God had made to him. Uh, Abraham still obeyed God and was willing to sacrifice his son. And just like us, you know, we too should take the things that really matter to us and be willing to give them up out of our devotion and loyalty to God. But you've got to admit, if you step back from it for a minute, that's a pretty troubling analogy to draw to take someone who is willing to engage in child sacrifice because that's what they believe God told them to do. And then to say, yes, this is what we should be like also. Well, I think it's troubling. If you just pull yourself back out of the story for a moment and look at it um, with a little bit of objectivity. And so as we go through the Bible, this kind of behavior from the God character keeps popping up. So uh, later on, you know, the, the descendants of Abraham end up going to Egypt and they do really well there, but then they get enslaved by the Pharaoh and then they're in slavery for 400 years and then they get liberated, hooray, from, by, by God from slavery and they escape and then they're being led by Moses and he's a great guy. Um, and then there's a bit of uh, rebellion, there's a bit of disagreement in the ranks about Moses' leadership and uh, Korah and his followers decide, you know, that, that maybe uh, things could operate a little differently around here. And uh, and God's pretty upset by this situation. Doesn't want people rebelling against his guy Moses. And in the end, without getting into all the details of the story, God opens up a giant chasm in the ground and swallows up all of the rebels and all of their houses and households into the ground, thousands of them into the ground, gone, dead. Which is like, you know, it's one way of reinforcing your um, your leadership choice. But, boy, that's uh, it's pretty violent kind of stuff from the God character. And then we also have the laws that are given to the people of Israel at this time. And obviously these laws are trying to, in many respects, manage and negotiate what, ancient, what, what things should help them to shape their communal life together. They've been this group of slaves who have now come out and are forming a new society. So what are the laws that are actually going to hold them together? Give them some kind of social cohesion. Uh, but the way the story is told, these laws are given directly from God and they include things like stoning to death people who have committed certain violations of the law. And uh, and that kind of stuff is still used today to defend you know death penalties in, in certain countries. Then throughout the rest of Scripture, we continue to have God popping up and behaving this Way from time to time, seemingly impatient or fed up or needing to execute justice in some kind of way. 
And even those tribal wars we talked about a couple of episodes ago in episode seven, these are often done at the command of God. It's God who's the one who says, go out and fight these people and you're going to win because I'm on your side and make sure you slaughter absolutely everybody while you're there. So how do we negotiate this? Well, I want to come back to something that I think it's really important to remember and that I highlighted in episode six of this podcast, uh, Mystics and Metaphors. And I think it really is a crucial piece of information. And it's this idea that there's not one singular view of God that's presented throughout the Bible. I think, uh, again, when we uh, are taught to see the Bible as this kind of cohesive one book that's dropped down out of the sky, um, there's this idea that everybody in the who is writing in the Bible, who is writing these stories down, has exactly the same thing in mind when they're thinking about God. But they don't. That's not consistent with what we actually see in the Bible. And the biblical narrative follows a bunch of different people over a long period of time in differing contexts who are all wrestling with what it means to be human, with what it means to believe in God, with what that God is like, how many gods there are, how it helps us to make some kind of sense of reality. And so over the course of that time, this what becomes hundreds or even thousands of years, uh, is this ongoing conversation that's unfolding and there are differing opinions and views of God that are being offered and the story is being told through multiple genres, through ancient mythology, through parable, through narrative and history and poetry and through prophets who speak uncomfortable, uncomfortable truths to people who are in power. And so there's all of this that's all happening together across the spectrum of this text. You know, early on in the story, there's very little evidence that the ancient Israelites were monotheistic, for example. And monotheistic is just a word that uh, describes, you know, believing in, in one God only. Uh, and, you know, Christianity and Judaism and Islam are often talked about as the three great monotheistic religions. But the origin of this religious story in early ancient Israel uh, is not monotheistic, really. Monotheism is something, belief in just one God is something that develops much later in the conversation. And so when you read the early parts of the story, you realize actually they're often talking about multiple gods that talk about even in the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me. Um, and there's often the sense of competition between these different gods. And so the belief of ancient Israel in the first instance was really not that there was only one God, but that their God was best. And their one was the one who was worthy of their worship. He was, uh, Yahweh was the one they should stay faithful to. Later on in this story, though, there's a clear development into a much more monotheistic tradition, i.e. the belief that there's in fact only one God. So we see that change and that transformation takes place in the conversation itself over time. And then at times in the Old Testament, for example, you find the authors who actually disagree with each other about what God is like and about how we should behave and how we should live. You know, there's the Torah, the Mosaic law, which demands animal sacrifice, for example, and this is apparently straight from the mouth of God. And yet the prophet Isaiah, later on, says that, he'd, that God rather, would rather have justice for the poor than sacrifices of animals. God says, I don't need your sacrifices. I don't really even want them. The prophet Jeremiah, controversially, uh, this is again, you know, this is in the time of exile now, so this is many hundreds of years after the giving of the law. Jeremiah actually says that when God delivered them from Egypt, he never said anything to the people about doing burnt offerings and sacrifices. You've got to do some uh, interpretive gymnastics to try and make Jeremiah and the Torah agree wholeheartedly with each other. 
it's much more obvious to the reader, if you're willing to see it, that Jeremiah is in fact saying, no, this is not what God demands or needs or desires from you. So there's a difference of opinion. At other times, there's a real tension in the Old Testament writings about how to treat foreigners, include them or exclude them. Uh, So some people say we should welcome the foreigner and the alien in. And other people say, no, we must keep them out. Some say, yes, uh, you're allowed to intermarry. And some say, no, you're not allowed to intermarry. Uh, At times, even within the Torah itself, it says uh, you're allowed to have slaves and this is what that's like. And then then later on it says, well, actually, no, you can't have this kind of slave, but you can have that kind of slave. And then later on the rules change again. Uh, And then at times in the text throughout the Old Testament, slavery is clearly prohibited entirely. Uh, So... There's not always total consistency. There are ongoing disputes and debates and disagreements about what it means to believe in God, about what God is like, and about what that means for the way we live. Now, of course, what we might do at this point is throw our hands up in the air and say, well, then what's the point of reading the Bible? If it's not going to give me a clear, concise description of exactly what God is like and be consistent with that all the way through, but then, then what's the point of even reading it? What am I supposed to get out of it? But to see it this way or to complain about it in this way is, is kind of to miss the point, I think. Or at least that's what I'm, I've come to think over many years of wrestling with this kind of stuff myself. And the whole idea is that we're invited to enter into this ongoing conversation. You actually do see this in Jewish engagement with their sacred text, um, but much less so in modern Christianity. But the whole idea is that we're, we're invited to participate in the negotiation, you know. We're to continue wrestling with what God is like and what this could mean for the way we are to live in the world. And so in that sense, the texts in this kind of ancient, sacred scripture, you know, these texts are modelling for us a process that we're actually allowed to enter into for ourselves. So to read it like a flat text, to read it as some kind of fundamentalist rule book, is missing the kind of text that we actually have and wishing it was something else. And if we recognize that this is what the text is doing, then maybe we're able to see some things that perhaps we wouldn't see otherwise. So let's uh, let's return to a couple of these stories. Let's return briefly, for example, to the story of the flood. And what we find is that there's a story of God, all the gods, wiping people out through a flood event uh, in a number of different ancient Near Eastern worlds. In fact, a number of different uh, ancient stories all across the world. It's a story, the story of a flood, in which many people die, that's told lots of different ways in lots of different places. And in some sense, God or the gods are acting out of anger, out of some desire for punishment to wipe out uh, a majority of the population. So if you were told this story in the ancient world, it wouldn't have surprised you at all. You'd be like, yeah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But I tell you what would have surprised you in the version that we find in the Genesis story is that at the end of the story, in Genesis, God promises never to do it again. That's the thing that would have jumped out at you. The thing that would have been kind of flashing lights when the story comes to its climax and to its finish, because that's the really big point of difference. So there's this kind of story that's told everywhere. Yes, the gods are kind of angry with you, they're upset with you, they're going to punish you, and they have done so with this kind of flood that destroyed so many people. So be afraid of God. But in this story, it ends with a, hey, you know what? I'm not going to do that again. That's the thing that jumps out. So while to us this seems like a petty, violent, retributive story, for its time it was actually a step forward to a different, toward a different view of God. It doesn't get us all the way 
but it takes us a step along the journey, especially in the ancient world. And when we read of sacrifices in the ancient world, we find that, you know, in a lot, I mean, sacrifice is not something that's unique to ancient Israel. It's not something that suddenly popped out of the divine heavens that no one had ever thought of doing before. Sacrifice is a common way of trying to reconcile please, appease, keep the gods happy, whatever it might be, so that we can get by in the world, so that we can get the kind of weather that we want, so that we can get the kind of blessing that we want, so our armies will succeed, so that we'll prosper, whatever it might be. The big challenge, one of the big challenges in the ancient world is there's seldom a way to figure out how much sacrifice was enough to keep the gods happy. I mean, the priests and the different cultic systems were designed to help you navigate this kind of world and negotiate this relationship with the gods. Uh, but a lot of the time, you're always, you're consistently anxious. Did we do enough? Did we please God enough with the sacrifices that we offered? Perhaps we should sacrifice a bit more next time. But in the laws of the Torah, that we find primarily in Leviticus, uh, which in many respects read in a similar style and content to other ancient sets of laws in that part of the world, they're not radically unusual in their kind of layout and their format, even in much of their content. But there are things that stand out once again that stand out as different. And one of the things, even in this in this whole realm of sacrifice, is that they make it clear that if you make these particular sacrifices, you are right with the divine. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to query. I wonder if God is okay with that. I wonder if that was enough. I wonder if God is satisfied. You can actually know, okay, that's enough. So to us, reading something like Leviticus and hearing about all of this animal sacrifice and all of the regulations around us, it seems kind of bloody and barbaric and horrible. And in many respects, I think it is, right? But at the time, it marks another step forward in a way of seeing God. And let's return to that story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Well, once again, the idea here is about much more than Abraham having this, in fact, vastly different, I think, about than Abraham having such great faith that he was willing to murder his child out of devotion to God. In fact, the funny thing is that kind of faith would not really set him apart in the ancient world because that's what people did. It's not entirely uncommon to have people who sacrificed their children to gods. In particular, there was a god called Molech who was well known for demanding child sacrifice from people. In fact, what they would do is they would heat up the statue of Moloch who had his arms uh, raised out and then they would, the parents would have to come and place their child into the... the um, the burning arms of this statue of Molech uh, and then watch their child die out of their level of devotion and loyalty to God, so to their God. So it's not wildly unusual to have a God ask for child sacrifice in the ancient world. So when you read the Abraham story or when you were told the Abraham story thousands of years ago, the thing that really stands out in the story is again, not that Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son, but that God steps in and says, no, you don't have to do this. I don't need this from you. Stop. So again, it seems it's, this is not a good story to use for why you should be willing to, you know, lay your, I don't know, treasures or gifts on the altar and sacrifice them before God. That's not what the story is supposed to be saying. In fact, I think what this story is supposed to be saying is God does not demand that from you. God is not that kind of God who's going to demand you give up your child in this kind of way. So it's another little step forward in the conversation about what God is like. Now, in the Christian tradition, Jesus becomes really pivotal in this particular conversation because, because for Christians, uh, Jesus is a particular kind of entry into the conversation about what God is like. So... 
We're just going to put aside for the moment complicated discussions about historic Christian claims to the divinity of Jesus. So we can just put that aside for the moment, regardless of that particular conversation and what you think about that. The claim in the Christian tradition is that Jesus provides us with another monumental step forward in how to think about God. And in a tradition that has been wrestling with what God is like for hundreds of years, Jesus offers some particular insights. So Jesus says things like, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Now, when he says, you heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he's quoting the Mosaic law here, right? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting, apparently, what God has said. And then he pushes against it. He says, actually, I'm going to offer you a different way of thinking about this. Now, it's, it is, in fact, true that eye for eye and tooth for tooth was itself a step forward for its time originally. Uh, in the ancient world, there was often the problem of cycle, spiraling cycles of vengeance and revenge. So, you know, if someone from a neighboring tribal village, um, maybe they injured or murdered somebody from your tribal village, often the response was to go and wipe out their entire village. And then that would escalate and that would spin back. It's in fact the same kind of cycle of violence and revenge that we continue to see now. As we've said all along, ancient problems are still current problems, even if they look and sound a little bit different. And so eye for eye and tooth for tooth was a way to try and limit the cycle of vengeance and revenge. No, you can't go wipe out their entire village in response for what's happened, but you can take equal retribution that was eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But Jesus says, you know what? No, I'm going to take you another step forward. I'm going to push against that now. You, that, that, was, that was a step forward for back then, but that's not enough for now. And he says, what I want you to do is to turn the other cheek. I'm going to challenge you to love your enemy. I'm going to challenge you to embrace your neighbor, even when your neighbor is someone that you hate. So Jesus pushes the conversation forward again in profound and transformative ways. Jesus sides with the view of God who is one who reaches beyond the ethnic and racial and gender and class barriers, the God who includes and even prioritizes those who are on the margins. Jesus is the one who sides with the view of God who compels him to forgive even those who participate in his state execution. Jesus is the one who offers forgiveness to people and these people have not made any animal sacrifices and they are people who in many respects and in many cases have not even asked for forgiveness and that they're offered it anyway. So my argument here is that if we're going to read the Bible in light of the Jesus story, then the challenge is to ask, how does this story of Jesus fundamentally move my view of God forward and how does this challenge and even overturn some of the more primal and primitive views of God we see in the ancient story of Israel in the Old Testament? And in my view, that means we must look back at some of these texts of divine violence and say, no, that is not what God is like. That is not what God said. Not now that we know this. It's entirely understandable why ancient peoples thought about God that way. And it's not to say that they have no wisdom or insight to pass down to us. In fact, the very conversation itself is a conversation that gives us a profound insight into the human experience, the human condition, and into what we think of God. But those ancient accounts of divine genocidal violence, of divine endorsement of this kind of violence must be rejected. They can no longer shape our view of who God is and of what God is like. Now, there are some who state that we shouldn't challenge these violent portrayals of God. 
that if you do that, if you do what I'm doing here, you're just trying to turn God into some kind of hippie of your own making, some kind of weak, you know, uh, God who's just nice to everybody all the time. You're trying to turn God into a big old softy and ignore issues of justice and punishment and discipline. Um, well, hopefully over time it becomes clear that that's not really what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do in this particular conversation is follow the trajectory of the Jesus story and ask how this moves the conversation about God forward. And there are some who say that if God does it, then it's good and right, even if it looks wrong to us, because God can never be wrong. So because God's ways are higher than our ways and God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, whatever God does is right and good, even if it looks bad. So, and there are many people who, who hold to this kind of view in the world. Um, so if God wipes out a bunch of people, including children, it's right and good because God does it and we have no right to criticise it. And I, and I kind of know what those with this view are trying to do. You know, they're trying to reconcile a God who they believe is good with a bunch, bunch of actions that don't look very God, very, very good, sorry. So the answer is to say, well, God knows better than us, and if God's doing it, then we obviously just can't see why it's right and the good thing to do. Uh, and, and then one day maybe we'll understand. But the big problem with this is that it makes a mockery of any of our attempts to discern the right, the good, the beautiful, and the true. It turns us into the kinds of people who are willing to sacrifice children if we think that's what God is telling us to do, because if God said it, it must be okay. Uh, and it makes a complete uh, farce of any of attempt of ours to try and discern the right course of action, the good course of action in any kind of situation, because... God's own definitions of those terms are so wildly different to anything we can comprehend that uh, they lose all their sense of meaning anyway. So I want to suggest instead that when the Bible is read at its best, it's not trying to get us to be those kinds of people. It's not actually trying to get us to be blind loyalists who never question. In fact, the Bible itself is full of people questioning the character and actions of God, probing and testing and provoking and trying to figure out what on earth is going on here. So when we engage in that process, we're actually in good company. All right, so why does all of this matter? Why spend three episodes talking about violence in the Bible? Well, I hope that in some way it's become evident as to why this matters, but uh, let me repeat this idea uh, as a way to bring these three particular episodes to a close. And remind us of this, the way we see and talk about God has a lot to do with how we think about what lies at the heart of fundamental reality about what matters, about how we should live, about the values and ethics that shape our behaviour and our engagement in the world. We are seeing right now in the world the fruit of what happens when people believe that God is ultimately tribal, is capable of violence and is on their side. Whether you think about the extremists who wants to commit acts of terror as a display of devotion to God, or it's the powerful nation who wants to crush their enemies as a display of their exceptional place in the world and the way that God has blessed them. People who continue to build their lives around views of God that are deeply problematic. And many of these problems are based in troubling stories that are found in our sacred texts. But my conviction is that to read the scriptures as a Christian, and I don't know whether that's your faith tradition or not, um, but if we're going to read them in that kind of way, it's to read these ancient stories of violence with a critical eye to read them in light of the progression forward that the biblical story is trying to take us into, to read them in light of the kind of God that Jesus is moving us toward, 
and that is a view of God that rejects any kind of divine endorsement for violence or marginalization or abuse of power or manipulation of others for our own gains or vilification of those who are different from us. The invitation, the challenge, is to see that at the heart of reality itself, at the heart of what we talk about when we enter into the conversation about God, is the idea of self-giving and, self-giving and generous love for those close to us and for those who are a long way from us. And so that's a big part of why I think the conversation matters. So that's the third in this big trilogy on violence in the Bible. There's some weighty, meaty stuff here. Uh, And I know some people out there who have been listening have been listening multiple times to some of these episodes to try and uh, take in and wrestle with some of the ideas that are being talked about. Uh, Because I know it's kind of big stuff, right? Um, At this point, there are still a couple of big elephants in the room that need addressing, actually. Um, And so the next few episodes are going to be dealing with one of those in particular. And that's that if I'm even close to being right about this view of God, right? if some of what I'm saying here is close to the mark, uh, then how can this be reconciled with the traditional Christian belief that non-Christians go to hell to suffer forever? Um, what do we do with that? So we're going to spend three episodes wrestling with the biblical idea of hell. Woohoo! Oh boy. And perhaps it's not surprising, probably not surprising to you by now, but I'm going to argue for why I think the traditional Christian idea of hell is problematic, it's unhealthy, and I'm going to say it's not very biblical. So... Uh, That's going to be next time on In The Shift. We're going to kick that off. Look forward to it. See you then.